Welcome everyone to Becker's OrthoSpine and ASC virtual event. We're so excited to have you join us for the session, Key Issues in Minimally Invasive Spine Surgeries. I'm Brian Zimmerman with Becker's Healthcare and I'll be your moderator. I'm joined today uh, by Dr. Andrit Ziu. Uh, he's a neurological surgeon, spine fellowship trained with Mayo Clinic Jacksonville. Uh, Andrit, thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks for having me, guys. So great. to begin, I'm wondering if you can just, you know, tell our, our, our attendees a little bit more about yourself, um, share a little bit more about uh, Mayo Clinic Jacksonville, if, you, if you'd like, and then also share more about your, 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 your experience with minimally invasive spine surgery, and perhaps where did you start with minimally invasive spine, and, and where are you now? Sounds good. So uh, my, uh, my name is Andrew Zio. I uh, finished a, a neurological surgery training at University of Missouri in Columbia and uh, spine fellowship training in the Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville, Florida, uh, where I'm currently located. Uh, so the, I start, we started doing uh, uh, minimally invasive spine surgery um, many, many years back, and throughout the residency, it was uh, very common to perform minimally invasive procedures. Uh, and the tools that we uh, have nowadays uh, with minimally invasive surgery are quite extensive uh, from where I started. Uh, we could do minimally invasive laminectomy, and we started with fusions, we then proceeded with lateral fusions, uh, and with those in mind and in our toolbox currently, we can treat uh, quite an extensive array of diseases. So uh, my experience has been fantastic, I would say. Um, and I do uh, have a soft uh, spot for the minimally invasive uh, spine surgery. I perform both. I perform open and, and uh, MIS. Uh, but I do see it in my practice and in my own experience that uh, patients that uh, uh, undergo minimal invasive procedures uh, in general uh, do better uh, uh, post-operative. Since you perform both procedures, I think um, uh, you're in good position to answer this next question, which is about patient selection. So how do you, um, you know, really determine if someone is a fit for, for MIS, and then if someone's not a fit for, for a certain procedure, how do you go about communicating that to, to the patient? Can you share some insights there? Of course. Uh, <clears throat> so again, I'm a little bit biased towards MIS. Um, that's not because uh, I am only trained in MIS. Uh, part of my fellowship, I did both, uh, including deformity, MIS, as well as open procedures. Uh, but my personal bias is pushing me towards MIS. So that's, take that in consideration when you're listening to my, uh, my speech. Um, when I approach a patient for a either MIS or open, uh, of course, I give the first priority if I can do the, if the anatomy allows me to perform the procedure in the MIS fashion and achieve the same uh, goals that I could achieve with an open procedure. So the first thing in mind, um, does the patient, per particular patient anatomy, allows me to uh, achieve the same goals for MI with MIS that I could achieve with an open procedure. So that's the first thing in mind, because you don't want to achieve something less and do it MIS. You want to achieve the full spectrum of uh, uh, it be, being this a nerve compression or a discectomy or a, anything on the uh, array of uh, 
uh, surgeries that we do. So that's the first thing. Second thing is, um, the and it's quite important, you know, if the patient had a previous uh, open surgery and to convert that into an MIS, it's almost, it's, it's possible, but it's quite difficult. So if the patient is had the previous uh, spinal fusion and now he needs a revision of that spinal fusion, but it was done open, to convert that into my MIS, I, I, I usually do, do not try to do that. I, uh, <clears throat> I, it's almost a commitment that I have to continue with the open part uh, the way it was done before. So uh, that's number two. And number three is patient selection. Uh, if a patient is not, um, well, most of our patients, unfortunately, the one that needs surgery are in the uh, um, upper level of their age, which I mean that they're past their mid-age, they're in the, towards in the 50s and 60s, uh, and they have other comorbidities, which can be controlled better if you perform an MIS procedure. Uh, like blood loss is less with MIS for sure. Uh, uh, sometimes this, you have to make a trend though, because MIS procedure, depending on where you are in training, could last a little bit longer than an open procedure. Although that gap is closing quite significantly, especially with the new techniques that we're using, uh, especially with laterals, uh, uh, people that perform and will, will understand completely well what I'm saying, uh, a lateral procedure does not last as long as a posterior procedure. Um, so timing, patient uh, selection, uh, what uh, comorbidities come with the, with the patient, those are big things that I consider in my mind, you know, uh, uh, and a trend off, you know, between open and MIS. Thank you so much. Uh, and then when, when it comes to communicating to patients why they were maybe selected for MIS, uh, do, do you see patients really wanting MIS? Maybe perhaps like thinking of an example where someone may have had an open procedure and um, wants an MIS procedure or or has done some self-education about it. How do you how do you explain or, or educate the patient on the reasons why behind your decisions, or is that something you you don't encounter so much? No, so I, I have actually, and uh, we are living in an era that the patient is educated more and more, uh, and I've encountered that uh, even more at Mayo Clinic, where we have the patient uh, that usually frequent Mayo Clinic are very well educated, uh, so uh, they have already. Uh, uh, done uh, research uh, on their part before they even see you. So they do ask about MIS. And I, the way I approach it, I bring it up to them. This is how I perform an open procedure. And this is how, what the, how I perform an MIS procedure. And I try to explain, I have models in, in my own uh, uh, clinic and, and I try to explain it, this is the difference, and that's why this is called MIS, and this is what's called open, uh, and see if their understanding of the procedure is uh, in line with what MIS really means. Uh, it does, MIS does sound a little bit more, uh, I wanna say the word uh, sexy, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, it's, uh, more than that, it, it, they have to understand that, you know, some things cannot be achieved with the MIS procedure. And I do bring it up to them that, uh, in, in, you know, in your case or in a patient specific case, 
the MIS procedure cannot be performed because it will, it, it will, uh, it will, we will not achieve the same goal that we can with an open procedure. Makes sense. Uh, and, and then sort of folding into um, some patient education, patient communication, um, if you think about pain management, uh, probably factors in as well, sort of setting expectations around pain and rehab and that, that sort of thing. So I'm curious if, if we can get some of your thoughts maybe on, on best practices or, or for pain management or how do you approach pain management? Well, this is uh, <clears throat> this is uh, quite a difficult topic nowadays, especially with the opioid uh, uh, epidemic. I, and uh, as I men as I mentioned, you know, uh, before I recently just attended the Mayo Clinic conference, where uh, pain management was discussed from a uh, um, perspective of many different fields. You know, interventional, yeah, psychiatry. Uh, yeah. Uh, anesthesiology and uh, many other and opioid uh, uh, physicians that were specifically dealing with the opioid crisis. Uh, and it's not, it's not any, I don't have a golden answer to it. Uh, I would say one thing uh, that uh, uh, has changed my mind uh, into uh, uh, the uh, way I approach things. So uh, in the past, uh, I always, uh, was um, less, uh, or I would not offer surgery if if I think that surgery was indicated. But I would, I would uh, at least try to treat the patient uh, for some time in a less uh, in less interventional uh, with pain medication with uh, uh, injections. Um, but unfortunately, because of that mindset that we were trained with, uh, we also are creating a, a bigger problem, you know, the uh, opioid uh, dependence and epidemic, because once you treat the patient with an opioid uh, for a few weeks uh, to a month, then uh, our body uh, unfortunately reacts and requires it uh, present all the time. So because of that mindset, my mindset is changing a little bit more now. Uh, if I think that the surgical procedure uh, will relieve the pain and I don't have to prescribe uh, opioids long-term for just a few days post-procedure, then I am a little bit, I'm, I'm moving towards the, uh, uh, you know, offering that surgery uh, a little bit easier than I did in the past. Yeah. Uh, so that's, that's what's changing in my practice currently. And then uh, <clears throat> I am using more of uh, the non-opioid medications, uh, but we have to have an understanding and I, I see it. They are not potent. They don't control pain as well as, as do opioids. And we have to be frank about that. Uh, I see that uh, in every lecture we are recommending, well, use Tylenol, use uh, NSAIDs, uh, they do have side effects, uh, uh, but they don't also control pain as well. And many patients are not happy about it. Uh, so uh, <clears throat> it comes out to a discussion with the patient. Um, um, and then the other thing that I am also doing a little bit more is uh, the <clears throat> procedures that like spinal cord stimulators are increasing. They do control uh, they do offer a, quite a significant benefit when it comes to uh, 
less opioid usage uh, in the future. So those are the things that are changing uh, in my practice. Um, again, I don't have uh, a golden answer, and I don't think anybody does, you know, from, yeah. from my understanding and looking at the field. Yeah, that's that's what I was about to sort of add. There's, I don't think anybody has the the, the silver bullet here, uh, but I, I appreciate you laying out sort of your process. Um, I, you know, at the, at the beginning of our of our conversation, you sort of talked about how advances in technology have really increased the the uh, the amount of procedures you can do on MIS. Um, so I want you to sort of bust out your crystal ball now uh, and think about you know what. Um, what technologies, thinking here, maybe artificial intelligence, uh, maybe robotics, will be most important to the evolution of MIS and, and, and why that might be? I, I do believe strongly that uh, the robotics will have a, even a bigger role than they already have in the future. As far as AI, I don't have personal experience with it. I know I've seen uh, you know, attending conferences and lectures, I've seen some of the models that, uh, that AI, uh, but they are not currently uh, uh, able to be put in practice, uh, I would say. But when it comes to robotics, it's a completely different picture. Uh, I mostly precision nowadays are changing uh, because uh, robotics are becoming more efficient, and we are only at 2.0 of robotics. Uh, once we get to 10.0 of robotics, then uh, it will be almost uh, common and routine practice on usage. Uh, they do, and the way when I when I see a <clears throat> when I see a new technique or procedure, the way I think about it is: this technique or procedure going to make me faster and better surgeon and more accurate? And that's what robotics does: it takes a novice, uh, new trainee. Uh, increases accuracy uh, in screw placement, in, uh, and and once you use it more and more, you do become more efficient into it. So it does increase the efficiency a little bit, and definitely increase the accuracy. So those are the things when I evaluate a new procedure or a new technology. Those are the things that I keep in mind, and, and the way I approach if it's going to be good or not. Uh, and I do believe, I, I strongly believe that robotics will have a very significant part in uh, spine uh, in the future. Yeah, I do a question there. Robotic surgery myself, so. Yeah, um, th thinking about the, the increase in technology, robotics, et cetera, um, do you have any concerns about perhaps non-spine surgeons performing more spine procedures as uh, the technology becomes more sophisticated? Is that, is that something that, that crosses your mind, you think about? Um, so uh, I, I will give you my opinion about it and this is, uh, and I'll tell you why I think that way. Uh, I do not uh, agree with non-spine surgeon performing spine procedures. Um, uh, with all my uh, respect for my non-spine colleagues, my thought process behind my decision is that performing a procedure is not just how well I perform the procedure, uh, and it's not how well how good the films look after it. It's how to deal with the complication that arise from it, uh, how to best select the patient for the right procedure. 
for example, when I have a patient in clinic, I you know I can perform MIS, I can perform I can perform spinal cord stimulators. There is many different things that I have in my tool, or I can perform lateral surgery, which I'm doing nowadays. Uh, and many procedures that I have in toolbox that I select the patient for certain procedure. It's not that I have one hammer and one nail that I put on everyone. Uh, so when you when non-spine surgeons are performing this procedure, they have only one tool in their toolbox most of the time. Uh, they are doing it because they know how to do that. They cannot deal with the complications. And not, not only that, with every spine surgery that you do, you long-term, you are changing the anatomy and physiology of the spine. And you're gonna create another problem. You're gonna create another deformity. You're gonna create another uh, degenerative process that will accelerate in the future. Are you able to, do, to deal with that? No, you're not. So in that case, I think, um, it's better left at someone that is dealing with this thing day in and day out. Um, so that's one thing. And another uh, quite uh, basic example that I want to give, uh, I perform uh, anterior cervical surgeries all the time, uh, several times a week. But I perform certain procedures that I'm trained on. I don't go do thyroidectomies, even though, you know, thyroid is not far away from where I operate every time. That's because I've not been trained on it. I don't deal with those patients. I don't deal with their complications and I don't follow them. It's the same thing with, uh, you know, someone that is not been trained in spine surgery. This performing spine surgery procedures only because the technology is allowing. I don't think that's appropriate. I appreciate you answering that, that question and speaking to that issue. Indri, it, it's been a, a real pleasure speaking with you. Time has flown by. We, we are uh, at the end of our time together. Do you have any closing thoughts, key takeaways for, for our audience out there? No, it's my pleasure. And thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, it was a real pleasure. And I, I also want to thank our, our attendees who joined us. Thank you so much for, for taking time to be a part of our event. Make sure you check out the other amazing sessions during this event, and uh, please let us know if you have any questions, comments, or feedback. Thank you again for joining us. We look forward to seeing you at future Packers events. You guys have a great day. Thank you so much. Bye-bye.